the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Finding Hope in Times of Grief. That is the title of a new book by my guest tonight, Preston and Glenda Parrish. We're talking about how you go about dealing with the grieving and loss process and what all of that means and and how to indeed, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that sense of, of, of desperation in some cases, uh, that hopelessness, to actually find hope. Certainly that is the promise that we all have in Christ Jesus. And and yet going through that struggle, that loss, that hope, um, how to come out on the other side, that is key to what we're discussing tonight. Um, oftentimes people get the sense, I think, uh, Preston, and I'm sure both you and Glenda and your family went through this, of just simply being overwhelmed. It's almost as if you were paralyzed by the grief um, maybe for a short season, uh, distracted by the details that have to be worked through that, that kind of keep your mind and your heart off topic uh, because you've got funeral preparations and things of this sort and dealing with the opening parts of, of an estate plan or, or, or execution of an estate plan, things of this nature. And then at some point, at some point, you have to come full force and deal, full, full, fully frontal rather, in dealing with the loss and the grief. What was it like in, in your case? Well, Craig, you're very perceptive. Uh, dealing with grief is an ongoing matter that has lots of layers, an ongoing challenge and struggle. In fact, the struggle of one's lifetime, I would say. Grief has about it both that initial shock uh, that comes to you when an event happens, when someone you love dies and is no longer going to be a presence in your life in this world. And we all pretty much understand that, and that's why people rally around so quickly with flowers and food and cards and calls and all of those things that happen typically in the initial days and few weeks after someone experiences the loss, the death of a loved one. But probably the most surprising thing to us was both was that there is also a longer-term sort of time-release effect to grief where not just for days or weeks, but for months and years, the effects of grief and its impact on your life are something you walk through and live with and learn to wear and have to deal with day in, day out. That was a surprise. And then also surprising to us was the fact that most people really don't understand that. They think after a couple of months, maybe your life is going to be back to normal and you're going to get on with things. Well, the fact is, when you experience the death of someone you love deeply, uh, you will never be back to normal. You will have a new normal. It would be very much like learning to live perhaps with an amputation. Uh, its effects will be with you for the rest of your days. You will go on living, but you will live differently, and you will see things differently. And so for us, we were surprised by the ongoing nature of it. We were also surprised by the lack of understanding of the ongoing nature of it. And a part of writing Finding Hope in Times of Grief, which has been published by Harvest House, uh, has been to help people walking through grief understand they're not alone, understand something of the nature of the challenge, but also to help people who are relating to people in grief, who are trying to support people in grief, to understand at least a little bit more about what's going on. Um, people looking on from the outside at those who are grieving 
lots of times they don't see a very pretty picture. That was certainly the case in our lives. And Glenda and I looked at each other many times along the way following the deaths of my father and our son and said, you know, why would anybody even want to be with us? We're sure not much fun at this time in life. And so it really is quite an ongoing process that there's not a lot of understanding about in some cases. And hopefully through the book Finding Hope in Times of Grief, uh, we're helping to give some insight to those going through it as well as those living with those going through it. Did you find also perhaps a lot of just plain old-fashioned misconceptions out there about the grieving process? I mean, oftentimes there's that sense of, well, don't worry about it, you'll get over it. I think of of people that uh, will attend a funeral service and will come, and, and of course they mean well, they want to share words of comfort, but instead end up saying something that seems to be for the moment to the grieving person so incredibly stupid, and then we ourselves add, I guess, the, the sense of pressure that we're, we're trying to kind of show that stiff upper lip, we want to get back to work, get back to life, get back to the old normal sometimes. Certainly that is true. I remember very clearly about two weeks after uh, Nathan's funeral that um, I said to a friend on a Friday, I think by Monday we'll be back to our normal schedule. And I was so wrong because the grief was just paralyzing and it took um, really for me a good three years before I really got back to much of anything normal and back to another point that you had asked before I think that's just part of everybody does it differently and a, a friend um, some people said some very freeing things one friend said at one point I just said I just cannot stop crying and she said cry as much as you need to so there were friends that um, had great compassion but there was a misconception and misunderstanding on our part about what grief was. But also, we were surprised, especially with the Christian community, about a misunderstanding about grief and some of the things that people would say to us. Help me understand more about that, because, you know, we sometimes as Christians can can say some cruel things, again, I think largely out of a sense of, of, of ignorance or, um, you know, we're, we're wanting to help and just don't realize we're actually doing more harm than good. Well, sometimes it would almost just be boring, because I guess one of the most insulting things anybody ever said was said to Preston by someone that had been in ministry as long as we had, uh, and he said to Preston, as soon as I found out that your son had gone to heaven, I began to pray that God would not judge me and take my own son. And um, the, the theology that you bring to a situation is very important, but the person grieving already has a tremendous explosion that has occurred in their life, and they're just trying to pick up the pieces and cling to God the best they can. And then when somebody comes and says something like that, it's just adds another big explosion. And people just have no idea how important it really is to just say nothing and be a presence and uh, pray. Does it also run the gambit, too, in the opposite extreme, uh, Preston? I'm thinking of those that, especially later on in the grieving process, we might be a year later, and and maybe you can speak to that, too, in a moment. But this idea that, well, I I don't want to bring back painful memories. I don't bring something up. So, for example, um, the loss of your son, a neighbor who says, well, I know that tomorrow's your son's birthday. They're thinking to themselves, but they don't dare mention it because the impression is that by mentioning something about your son, that's going to bring back some painful thoughts. Well, that's a good point, Craig. People, it 
it's important for people to understand that on the one hand, it's they shouldn't say cliches and trite phrases without really understanding what they're talking about, but at the same time, it's a tremendous blessing to a person to know that a year or two or three down the road, others are remembering your lost, your absent loved one, and they let you know that they're still thinking of you, that they're still praying for your family, that the individual was important and special to them because of a particular reason. That's a tremendous blessing and encouragement. Part of the challenge of going through grief is you come to think you're alone, you're isolated, you're the only one walking around feeling like you have the perpetual chronic flu in your soul. And when somebody down the road does say to you, you know, I was thinking about your son, I was thinking about your father, I was thinking about your brother or sister just today, and I remembered this, I remembered that, weren't they a blessing? Uh, that's a great encouragement. It lets people, it lets you know that people have not forgotten and that you are not alone, humanly speaking. And of course, we are not alone from the standpoint that God is with us. He sent his son into the world as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And, and that is the key to coming out the other side, is, as you raised. It is having that intimate, vital, personal relationship with Jesus Christ and ideally before the storm hits your life. When a storm hits your life, it's a little late sometimes to get the foundation in place. But our Lord said, if you hear the word of God and do it, you are like a person who has built his house on a rock. And when the storms do come, not if they come, but when they come, your house will stand. And so the key to getting through it and coming out the other side strong and healthy uh, is indeed having that relationship with Christ, that experience in God's word, that daily moment-by-moment practice of prayer. Those things really do make a difference in addition to having the caring interaction with people who, who who are praying for you and who want to help in any way they can and have some measure of sensitivity. When we come back, a look at taking care of yourself and learning what the process is for you, finding hope in times of grief. Our conversation with Preston and Glenda Parrish continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. The new book, by the way, published by Harvest House, entitled Finding Hope in Times of Grief, available at Christian bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Its authors, Preston and Glenda Parrish, with us today, talking about their experience um, recently of having lost their 25-year-old son and uh, Preston's father all within the same week. One of the issues when we go through an experience like this, uh, Preston, uh, there's oftentimes, I think, the sense of pressure, be it real or imagined, to kind of get back to business as usual, get back to normal. And so we rush to go back to work, uh, kind of resume our, our daily routines, and I think in the process, fail to take the time to really take care of ourselves and, and, and fully recognize this is a significant loss. This is a loss of an, you know, an important person in my life, as you suggested earlier, like having a, an appendage that has, has been amputated. And, and to try and ignore it or, or pretend as if we're over it and we're back to life again as a sign of strength, which I would imagine in some cases is actually more weakness than anything else. Well, that's right, Craig. And our society does, sadly, encourage people to try to ignore it, suck it up, and go on. But obviously we are human beings. God has made us with emotions. We do have feelings, and we must face them and deal with them. And that is a part of what grief involves. Uh, grief and depression are actually fairly closely related. If you read literature on clinical psychology, uh, persistence of 
sad or anxious or empty feelings, feelings of hopelessness and pessimism, a sense of irritability, restlessness, of being slowed down, fatigue or loss of energy, uh, feelings of worthlessness or guilt or fear, uh, increase or loss of appetite, difficulty concentrating. You mentioned that earlier, remembering details, uh, making decisions, uh, not sleeping or sleeping too much. Uh, loss of interest in activities that used to be pleasurable. All of these symptoms go with grief. Now, if they occur soon after the loss of a loved one, uh, they are not necessarily clinical depression. They are just grief. And so there's no way that you can be going through those kinds of, of feelings and emotions and experiences and just somehow pretend, oh, well, it's all okay. Uh, to do that is like trying to walk with concrete blocks attached to your legs. You're not going to go very far very fast. And so the healthy response is to indeed acknowledge before God and to yourself and, in fact, with your family and with everybody around you, I have had this major event happen in my life, and it is having a huge effect on me, and I'm going to be real about it. I'm going to be honest about it. And nicely, but very honestly, this isn't about you. It's about me and about the Lord and about my loved ones who are walking through this with me. And we're going to do what we need to do to handle it and respond to it. This especially comes into play, for example, in facing first occasions, uh, first birthdays, first Thanksgivings, first Christmases, other such events. Everybody has to do that in the way that works best for them. I don't read in the Bible so-called spiritual ways to handle those kinds of events. And so you really do have to prayerfully seek the best way to do that for yourself, for your family, and sometimes that may not square with other people's expectations or impressions, but you know what? That's okay. And and do you find, too, that this sense of differences in the way people, as we know, we're all unique, we have special, unique relationships with Christ, the person who passes away, we all have a different relationship with that individual, and so this process of dealing with the pain, the loss, the grief, finding our way into a place of hope. It's different from every, for everybody, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, you know, Dr. Gary Chapman has written the helpful book on the five love languages. He was very kind to give a word of endorsement for finding hope in times of grief. But just as everybody expresses and receives love differently, uh, I think there is a sense in, in which people express and work through grief differently. For some, uh, they they withdraw and they think and they write. Others give themselves to intensive physical activity. Some people uh, travel. Uh, some people throw themselves into their work even more. Uh, some people, you know, have very different responses. And all of that's okay as long as it's uh, a way by which a person is honestly seeking to draw near to the Lord in their time of need. Now, obviously, you can't use these things as an escape, and certainly not uh, alcohol or drugs or, or, or other practices as a way of trying to escape the pain. The pain will not be escaped. It is there. Uh, you can't bury a worm. It always finds its way back to the surface. And so you really do have to face it, but there can be tremendous uh, diversity and variety in the way we face it uh, as long as we're being honest with ourselves and before the Lord and seeking God's help and healing. And ultimately, it all does come back to the fact that in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis for our confidence, for our hope for the future. There's this enormous misconception about hope in our society. It's many times thought of as kind of like, so 
somebody's getting ready to kick a field goal and you close your eyes and you cross your fingers and you, you think positive thoughts and somehow maybe that's going to make the ball go through the uprights. Well, wishful thinking is not hope. Hope is confidence based on the fact that in Jesus Christ we do have victory over the grave and that even though right now can be awful in the moment by moment, ultimately God is with us. He will see it through us, see us through it. And uh, for those who trust in him, uh, our destination for eternity is in the very presence of Almighty God and with those we love who have trusted him. We're looking forward to the day when we see Nathan again. And Glenda, you really have to put your, your trust, don't you, in the Lord in terms of the Lord guiding you, showing you through what the process will be for you as you deal with the loss. You address the grief. You move to that side of hope that, as Preston points out, it's different for all of us. No person can say, well, you need to be at this point in your recovery and this kind of progress at this schedule. It really is different for all of us, and only God can really help walk us through that. Am I right? That's exactly right. I think it was about 24 hours after Nathan died. The first, My first response was to collapse on my bathroom floor and just cry out to God, Oh, Jesus, help me, my son, my son. And I just resorted to my rocking chair in my bedroom, and I had just screamed out to God, My child, my child. And it was as if God impressed upon my heart, Glenda, he is my child. Mm. And I had to quickly... Um, agree with that, because Preston and I had turned all of our children back to the Lord once they were born, and I had, my job as his parent was over, and I just had to come to terms with the fact that he was now with his perfect Heavenly Father, and that brought me hope, and we I would see God that way in the most difficult moments, and um, so that that is that we saw, and that's the hope that we know, and that's the hope that he will give to anybody that's walking the road of grief. Let me, let me ask you to stay with us for a moment. I want to pause on this point. When we come back, talk about the challenge of finding strength in this process as you want that moment to break down and cry. You just want to go and have yourself you know, a nice, good, solid cry, and yet you have to be strong for others because you have a husband, a wife, you have children that are relying upon you. How do you get through that? Find time for yourself, allow yourself to grieve, and yet deal with the stuff that has to be dealt with no matter what. A look at finding hope in times of grief. Preston and Glenda Parrish with me tonight. We'll be back with more and some closing thoughts as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. With Preston and Glenda Parrish, a look at finding hope in times of grief. As we mentioned at the onset, loss of loved ones is something that's a natural part of life, and yet we feel as if our very insides have been ripped out. And then there's that process of how do we deal with this? How do we memorialize the loved one? How do we move on? And yet in the process of moving on, always keep part of them with us. Many of those insights detailed inside this book. And I guess the the one thing that we need to be mindful of in this, um, uh, Preston, and that is that no individual can really tell us how to grieve or what the process ought to be like, because that is unique for every one of us, is it not? I think that's correct. Grief is not some paint-by-the-numbers exercise. It's different for each person going through it. But what's important is that each person get to the place where in their grief, in their valley, 
they experience the one who walks through the valley with us, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is possible for people listening right now going through grief. It may have been all they could do today to get up out of bed without throwing up, or maybe they threw up anyway. And they wonder, am I ever going to feel better? Is life ever going to be different again? Is it ever going to be not raining in my world? Well, the answer is that God is with you. He will not forsake you. He will walk with you through your unique personal circumstances. He understands every fear, every tear that you have. He understands every factor in your situation that nobody else knows. And he walks through grief with us individually and will usher us into the confidence, the hope of Christ, if we will just cling to him. Tell me a bit about the process of remaining strong. You both had to deal with this as you've lost a son, Preston, you've lost a father, and yet you've got kids now that are still relying upon you. Um, You're dealing with the grief, the loss, the pain, and yet this aspect that, that you've got to be strong for the kids and life goes on. How do you go about managing all of that? Well, in a word, prayer, uh, within minutes after receiving the call about Nathan's death, the day after we buried Daddy, my personal prayer was quite literally and out loud, Lord, you know I'm hurting, you know what I need, but for now I'm just going to leave that with you. Uh, My family needs me right now, and in your time, in your way, I trust you to minister to me in all the ways that I need it. But for now, for this moment, in this phone call that needs to be made, in this person that needs to be told, in this decision or matter that needs to be dealt with, please give me the strength, give me the wisdom, give me the perspective to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to do this well for your glory and for my family. And thank God, he's so faithful. Uh, He really is with us. He really does carry us as a shepherd carries a sheep on its shoulders. He carries us. And he really is meat for the moment. He's enough for whatever moments we face, and he will help us face those those hard moments, even when we just do not have it in us, as I did not. And then in time, uh, he, in his faithfulness and love and mercy and understanding, does indeed come to us as well uh, in our own needs and our own personalities and minister his comfort and peace and healing to us as well. Uh, for me, it really happened weeks and months down the road. Uh, Months later, I remember I was sitting on an airplane traveling in conjunction with our ministry, and just out of nowhere, for no explainable reason, tears just began streaming down my face, and images of Nathan, our son, began flooding my mind. And uh, it was a little embarrassing sitting there on an airplane, just uh, weeping. Uh, I didn't want to make the passengers around me uncomfortable, But at the same time, it was absolutely part of God's healing and therapy for me. I wouldn't have chosen for it to happen in C3C, but that apparently was the right time in God's sight. And I think there was something healing and therapeutic about that moment, as well as many others we've been through. So God does meet our needs. But, you know, a part of maturity is getting beyond what about me, what about me, to to being able to trust the Lord with our needs and say, okay, but Lord, how do you want me to use me with the others in my life, and how do you want to use me for your glory? And he really will help us to do that if we'll trust him. Absolutely. And I think then, too, the notion that sometimes, like the event that you talked about, is going to happen, and that's okay. I remember one time for me when I had lost my grandmother, who practically raised me after my folks were divorced, um, we would oftentimes, if we saw TV programs that we thought the other would enjoy, would pick up the phone and call 
uh, and say, hey, there's a great show on XYZ Channel. Tune in and watch it. And I remember one Saturday evening, this is probably easily four to six months after she passed away, uh, a show came on TV that I thought she would like, and absentmindedly I walked to the telephone, dialed the number, and sat there listening to the phone ringing. And after seven or eight rings, I remember looking up at the clock on the kitchen wall and thinking, well, where should could she be at this time of night on a Saturday evening? Yeah. And it dawned on me. And, of course, I, I, I began to cry. I sat the phone down. For a moment, I felt so terribly foolish that it's almost as if the, the whole events of what had transpired with her hospitalization and her death had just slipped out of my mind for a moment, and I was suddenly back to our old routines again. But Craig, that, that was a beautiful moment. And, and in the book, we talk about uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, the well-known story of his marriage to his wife, Joy Gresham, and she died of cancer just a few years after they married. But they talked about this pain that we experience when someone we love dies. And, and then, of course, the question naturally comes on the heels of it. Well, why love if it's going to hurt so badly when someone is taken from us? And Lewis and, and Gresham had this wonderful response between them. The pain now, the pain then is part of the pleasure now. The, the pleasure now is part of the pain then. That's the deal. We live in a world right now where those two things are inseparably intertwined. One day God will wipe away every tear, but a moment like you had there in in your experience after your grandmother's death is a beautiful testimony to, to the reality of the love you had with each other, and then absolutely with that, the pain of not having that one with us anymore. And I think, too, uh, Glenda, that sense of always having them with you to one degree or another. Um, you know, I, I look at things today now, uh, and I see so much of the influence of her on my life uh, I mean, I, 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 even if it comes to getting behind the stove and cooking an Italian meal, I, you know, I do certain things now because I know that's the way she did them. And it becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of, of your day-to-day -day life. And, and those things bring back, as, as Preston suggests, those wonderful, fond memories that keeps a part of them, I think, in a sense, alive, at least in your heart. That is really the truth. One of the things that I said to Preston in the first few weeks was it's so hard to believe how intertwined one person can become in every facet of your life, and you don't even realize it until they're gone. And Nathan was 25, so he had not lived at home for quite some time. But I still, after he died, would open drawers and see something he had written or something that he had made, and it would just take me back, just like when you called your grandmother. But one of the things I missed the most about him was his voice, and I didn't count cancel his cell phone um, really for a year and a half, and sometimes I would just call it to be able to listen to his voice. And so those things are very difficult, but those are the kinds of things and the places that God will meet you if you ask him. Amen. And, and, and meet you, I might add, in a very significant way. The book, again, called Finding Hope in Times of Grief, newly published by Harvest House and available, again, at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks again to Preston and Glenda Parrish for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you've been watching the numbers, and perhaps you've noticed they're telling a very interesting story. In recent months, we've seen unemployment at some of the lowest numbers in, well, quite frankly, memory. Oil has been up. Stocks remain steady. 
And we see the Small Business Optimism Index at the second highest level it's been in some 45 years. Wow. Certainly it would seem as if the economy is chugging along on all eight cylinders. But if that be the case, and as we see stocks, again, generally pretty steady, are you poised to take advantage of the trends taking place in the economy? And what role do these trends play in the future security of your family and your retirement? With some insights, we're joined now by a gentleman, a friend, certainly a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's David Mitchell, founder of Tradeway. And David, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Craig. Good to be with you. These numbers certainly have been superlative, and we know there's been a bit of a volatility lately that's crept into the market, certainly much of that surrounding concerns over potential trade wars between the United States and uh, many of our trade partners like Canada, China, the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, from your vantage point, uh, how do you assess the current health of the economy and more specifically what's going on on Wall Street? Well, it's it's excellent. I mean, one thing that you guys uh, need to understand it'll really help, and that is that the stock market itself sort of anticipates the the economy. It looks, in other words, it looks out into the future, not at today so much, and so sometimes they don't correlate exactly. In fact, they really don't at all, and that's one reason the big boys on Wall Street. Um, do so well at trading, and sometimes your neighbor doesn't do as well uh, because he thinks the neighbor thinks that the uh, stock market correlates with the present tense in the economy. It really doesn't work that way. Um, but look at it this way: we do know these things are true about the economy. You mentioned some great things there at the start of the show. Uh, we do know that President Trump has cut taxes, corporate taxes, which is huge for the stock market. And um, we know that he is cutting regula- regulatory problems that banks had that, that really hindered business. And by cutting those, that's good for the economy and for the stock market, both. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. If you look back at the stock market, if you go back to the day after the election of Donald Trump, from that day up until, oh, January, let's see, I'm going to get you an exact date, Uh, January 25th, we had what our company, Tradeway, calls the first year of a new bull market. Now, what's funny about that, Craig, is that Wall Street doesn't say it's a new bull market. They say it's an old bull market, and they just acted as if it was a continuation of everything that happened three to five years prior, which is not really true, but there are reasons why they do it that way. But it actually, with the election, the next day after it, a new bull market started. And the first year of a new bull market is different than anything else in the whole cycle because it can go up for 12 months in a row with no corrections. And by a correction, I mean where the market sort of gets wacky and, and tanks a little quite a bit, maybe you know, maybe not quite 20%, but it may go down 15% and get kind of volatile for a little bit. And and the trend stops, and it heads down for uh, usually six to eight weeks. Well, the first year of a new bull, it'll, it'll go a whole year without doing that quite often. But then everything changes because after that first year, the second, third, and, say, fourth year of a bull market acts differently. And what we've observed is that normally you'll have about three months of very good, reliable uptrend, 
and then you'll have a correction, and that correction will last six to eight weeks, which means it moves down and gets kind of volatile. But then after that six to eight weeks period is over, a new uptrend will start, which will last approximately three months, and it goes on and on for the next, for the second, third, or fourth year uh, in general. And then after that, you get into what we call the old tired bull market, which acts entirely differently. But we're not close to that yet, so we'll hold that off for another talk. But right now, what we've seen is the the first year of this bull market, actually, that the way it looks, it actually lasted a little bit more than 12 months because it was about 13 and a half, 14 months. And that, that segment ended there on um, – January 26, 28, somewhere right in there. And then it really tanked, and we had a little correction. Well, sure enough, it lasted about um, between six and eight weeks. And on about um, April the 5th, it started the next section of really reliable uptrend, which if you had a chart of the S&P 500, you could see that. So you can see how smooth and how pretty it is since that date till now. And um, when you come to a tradeway meeting, you learn how to draw support and resistance lines and use moving averages to, to kind of know where to put those lines. But um, the, the whole index will bounce up and down between those lines in a real pretty little uptrend for about three months, and then you'll have another correction. So that, that's kind of how you read the stock market part. The economy, you read it perfectly there at the first of the show. It's just doing very well. All the economic numbers look good. And even looking out maybe a year, the market still thinks so, or it wouldn't be uptrending. As we take a look at sort of the ebb and flow of all of this, no doubt many people are wondering, gee, I have a cousin who's done well or maybe a cubicle mate at at work. How do individuals and families take advantage of some of these trends? I know for a lot of people whose memories still sting from the events of the downturn back in 2009, for some it seems like an eon ago, for other people they've never even quite recovered. But for for the for those that still remember all of that and say, you know, I, I understand money is to be made there, but I'm not sure how to do it, and I'm concerned about protecting the financial security of my family. What can they learn at a Tradeway seminar? Well, you know, that, that is the greatest question because I think it's a huge mistake when we decide to allow another person to take care of 100% of our total life savings. We don't know that person that well, and he claims to be an expert. I just think that's a terrible mistake. And one of the great goals of Tradeway is to go around the country and to educate people in a fun way, a two-day uh, event uh, so that they can know the language of Wall Street and understand what their financial advisor is even talking about, and even by the end of that two days, uh, be able to advise your financial advisor and tell him what to do and what not to do so that you don't allow him to lose 25, 35% of your total life savings the next time we have um, a recession. And you, it's not it's not rocket science. It's just skill sets, and you can easily learn those skill sets at a Tradeway event. We'd love to have you come because a lot of our people that come actually want to learn to trade on their own. But a good byproduct of that is you also learn how to advise your financial advisor so you don't let him lose 
35% of your total money. There is absolutely no need for that. So you get beyond just the simple mechanics of trading into, quite frankly, a lot of the the philosophy or, better yet, the, the stewardship principles that underscore, that undergird one's investment life and ultimately the, one, the way an individual or family prepares for their financial future. You've got a seminar coming up this Friday and Saturday at the Fremont Marriott, and I'd like you to spend a moment, if you would, David, tell us what this thing is all about, why should people go, and most importantly, how can they get more information to register? All right. Well, a couple of our best teachers are going to be there, Christy and Boyce McLeod, and um, they've been lifelong friends of ours, but also worked in business with us, but... They're excellent stock traders, and and they know our system so well. And they they uh, we we just have everywhere they go in the country, we have huge uh, applause for their abilities at teaching. So they're going to be your teachers this weekend, and I would not miss them. Um, but you know what, what's going to happen? You you don't really even have to bring a laptop if you if you don't want to. Just come, show up. We'll have workbooks and everything you need there. And just sit and enjoy it. Just listen, pay attention. If you've got children that are, say, 10, 12 years old or older, when you get a ticket for $99.95, it includes your whole household. So bring them. They'll love it, especially day two, because it has to do with uh, noticing uh, different patterns and things like that in different stocks. And the, the young people do that better than we do, I think. And so bring them if you want to, and then you'll get a second ticket free just to bring a friend uh, if you want to do that. So that's what I would say. Just come and remember that 98% of the people in that room are going to be people that don't know one thing about the stock market, and many of them never even owned the business. So we start at ground zero, and we show you why the stock market exists, the language of the market. Uh, we go as you as you said uh, just a minute ago, Craig. We go into biblical principles. It's the oldest book on the planet that discusses investment and economics and finance and all these things. And so there are many principles in the Bible that are like gravity, and they flat work when you operate those principles. And we show you how to incorporate those into your uh, investments, your investing, and your trading, and so forth. So it, it's fantastic it's a lot of fun it's a lot of hands-on and it starts at ground zero and i'll tell you what if you come and you stay both days and you don't love it just go to the back table and say hey we love you but this is not for me and they'll give you that 99 dollars back so there's nothing to lose there craig i i just think it's a it's a great opportunity and, of course, the information shared can literally change a person's life. So I want to, again, mention this special two-day event will be this Friday and Saturday at the Fremont Marriott Silicon Valley. And as David mentioned, you can register your entire household for just ninety nine ninety five. Plus, you'll receive an extra ticket to bring along a friend or a loved one, and again, with a full money-back guarantee. To register, call toll-free 877-907-TRADE. That's 877 8723, or easier still, go online to tradeway.com. That's tradeway.com and register for the special live two day event called Step One Start Your Journey again this Friday and Saturday at the Fremont Marriott Hotel. Register online at tradeway.com or call toll free 877 907 TRADE. 
That's 877-907-TRADE. David Mitchell, founder and CEO of Tradeway. David, we appreciate the time. Look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Thank you, Craig. We'll see you next time. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.